Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. The characters in John Fulton's collection of stories, The Flounder, are, well, floundering. Their relationships teeter on the edge of catastrophe with revelations of affairs and the complications of religion and family obligation. They're on the run from the albatrosses of their hometowns and the past lives that shadow them no matter how far they flee. And time, ceaselessly ticking onward, is running down the days, hours, minutes, and seconds of the character's brief time on Earth, and they can feel it in their bones. In one story, two teens are lured into an old woman's house with the promise of sweets, to help keep her company as she cares for an unresponsive husband. In another, an American in Europe meets a woman on a train who is on her way to meet Destiny, an orchestra audition that she does not want, but feels she must attempt in order to hold in place the idea of a family. In Box of Watches, a pawn shop robbery puts the sacrifices of a grandfather for his grandson in stark relief. Lovers quarrel, families implode, and coincidence brings some people together even as it tears others apart. Fathers and sons brush up against violence, and their fragile kinship is unsettled. And faith and belief are challenged by desire and the rawness of real life. In each story, the normalcy of our quotidian existence takes on the qualities of the extraordinary in these character portraits that sketch unforgettable, ordinary people. This is a collection full of music and food and languages, and its pleasures are many, even as it is so often forlorn. John Fulton is the author of four books of fiction, including Retribution, which won the Southern Review Short Fiction Award in 2001, the novel More Than Enough, which was a finalist for the Midland Society of of Authors Award, and The Animal Girl, a collection of two novellas and three stories, which which was a story prize notable book. His short fiction has been awarded a Pushcart Prize, twice cited for distinctions in the Best American Short Stories, shortlisted for the O. Henry Award, and published in numerous journals, including Zoetrope, Oxford American, and the Southern Review. He currently lives with his wife and daughter in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and is a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where he directs the MFA program in creative writing. His most recent book, which will be the subject of our conversation today, is a collection of stories, The Flounder. Welcome to Burn by Books, John Fulton. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. I really adore these stories. The, the flounder has a, a quite fascinating effect of feeling both like a series of very different short stories in different places with different characters 
end like a novel in which the chapters have been put together out of chronological order. There are clearly recurrent characters, Daniel and Marion, um, but other characters appear to be related in some way by blood or other intimacies. But even when there's no intimation of connection, these characters feel strongly bound together within your imagined world. How do you see these characters as connected or sharing in some common elements that draw the stories together? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really like about story collections, um, at least a lot of story collections, is I think that they show us the preoccupations of a single writer's mind at any given mm. time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think these writers um, sit around and sort of think about um, how what it is they're working on story by story is related or if it's related, but that, you know, we're obsessive. I think most writers are obsessive um, and there's certain things that bother us at any given time. And that's what I think rises to the surface in the work, um, which is to say I wasn't I certainly wasn't planning uh, uh, a lot of the things that you're seeing echoed and reoccurring here. Uh, it just sort of happened, and I followed it. And I, you know, I, I will say this about the collection: it is the first time that I was really aware of autobiographical material in my work. Um, before, you know, I think that stuff sort of rose to the surface. This material, a lot of it, you know, just, you know, was was eating away at me and happened to be uh, a part of my life, uh, most of it from many decades ago. Uh, and, you know, one of, one of my concerns is I did this because it really was kind of the, the, the first time is uh, finding a form, finding a way to make sure that it was story and not just details from my life. Light isn't, you know, inherently dramatic, interesting, or shapeful necessarily. So, you know, yeah. So I was, I was, I was, uh, very much preoccupied by some material that, um, I had experienced about, I guess, at least 30 years ago, some of it earlier, uh, when I was living as an expatriate young American in Switzerland for about three years and then in Berlin, Germany. And, and that, you know, I was, it was an interesting, challenging time for me. And I, I tried to write about it for several decades, but for whatever reason, it just, uh, it just didn't become narrative fiction for me. Um, so the link really is you and, and, and not particularly the characters, but a, an underlying thread of connection that draws in your experience and gives it the shape of fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, w- I would say in the simplest way, yes. <laughs> I, I'll go straight to, to it. The second story in the collection, Budapest, is my favorite and, and one of the best I've read in a long time. I wonder if you'd uh, give us a, a a little section of that story, read it um, from the beginning, just um, a few pages, just to give us a flavor of Budapest. Sure. And I'll, uh, first of all, thank you. I mean, this was really one of my favorite stories to write. So I'm so glad that it spoke to you. Budapest. They met on the night train to Budapest and seemed drawn to each other by how different they were. She was from Brussels place he'd only seen on the map, and he was from Draper, Utah, 
a place she'd clearly never imagined was on any map. That's why I wanted to get away from it, he told her, explaining that he was making his way across Europe with a Eurorail pass. Budapest would be the first city he'd see to have recently emerged from communism, though he planned to see many more. When he asked her what she was traveling for, she leaned down and tapped her fingers on the black case like a little coffin thrust beneath her seat. An audition, she said. Her first language, she told him, was French, though her father was English, which was why she spoke so fluently and with a precise accent that was foreign to him. As the night grew darker, the train seemed to pick up speed and hum through the thick black outside their window. They told each other their ages. They were both 19, and their names. He was Leland, and hers began with an S and had a few elusive syllables that seemed to contain an L and an E, or perhaps an I. And when he said it back to her, she smiled and corrected him, but he never quite got it. It means, she said, a young woman who sees the future. He wanted to smile then and say, so what do you see? But instead... He asked her about her audition, and she grew quiet before telling him that it was for the National Orchestra. She'd been invited to audition, but she wasn't sure she wanted to succeed. What she wanted to do instead was forget her appointment and go to the baths that were famous in Budapest. They were the reason the Romans had settled in the River Valley in the first place. She could imagine sitting in the hot water, and closing her eyes as she missed her audition, and as her mother's ambitions bore her, melted away in the thermal heat. It was very late then, and most of the passengers around them had fallen asleep as the young woman told Leland that she loved music, but she couldn't be sure how she felt about the violin, which had been forced on her. Every time she picked up the instrument, she felt her mother's resentment for her father. He'd always been cold, the English often are. But he had done something else, too. Years ago, he had taken a mistress, whom he still had now. As a result, her mother, a very capable, ambitious woman who had sacrificed a career in music herself to be a wife and raise a family, had become single-mindedly dedicated to her children. She shook her head and smiled apologetically. You mentioned you were escaping your home, she said now. What is it that you need to get away from? Thank you very much. That final line there, the what is it that you need to get away from, uh, says so much and carries a great deal of significance in the story. Leland and the girl he meets, whose name he cannot pronounce, which is an element of the story I, I very much love, they're both running from obligations to families. In her case, it's this expectation that she auditioned for and become a principal player in a national orchestra. And those obligations are powerful, perhaps even more so than the intimacy and love that they begin to share. Other characters in your story simil similarly struggle with the magnets of family that draw them back to those onuses and expectations. Can you talk a little bit about how family obligation affects your characters and runs through these stories? Yeah, I mean, I think that in, in some ways, both of these characters, Leland and, and us, as she's called because he can't pronounce her name, are caretakers. They're like, you know, they're children 
uh, but they're also very aware that something deeply is is wrong in their family systems. And as a result, they are the ones who have to kind of be the parent or live the life that is a, is going to allow their parent um, to save their own um, lives. I mean, there's that, you know, portion that I read early on about um, as his mother who who's, who's sort of lives in a a dead marriage. Um, her husband is uh, having a long-term affair with someone else, and and as a result, uh, has become obsessed with perfecting her children. As, in Essa's case, that means uh, the violin. She's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she she can't she can't know if in fact she's doing that for herself or her mother. Um, Leland has a, a complicated situation. You know, he's as we find out, he's a Mormon. Um, he doesn't belong in the the small village and in that particular uh, insular community, religious community. But his mother has also been abandoned by his father, and it's well known in his small community, and of course he lives with it too, that he basically looks after, takes care of his mother uh, emotionally, um, and, and doesn't have a, a a normal life. He's also a smart kid who asks lots lots of questions. And, and, you know, that's, as we'll find out what he's getting away from. And I, you know, I think I often do write about, I guess I would say the weight of family, the, the fact that it is, you know, while it should be, um, our shelter, uh, that place where we can close the door and be safe from, you know, what can be an overwhelming world. It can also be the center of the things that are most suffocating for some. We don't always. We aren't always born into a family where we ultimately end up belonging, and certainly a number of these characters are struggling with that. And if they don't belong, what is it that they have to do in order to find a place that is, or that is, that is a, a place where they can, um, you know, become become themselves? So yeah, that, I think that I think that's what these two young people are doing, and that's what they discover as their intimacy develops over a few days in Budapest. Mm. The story evoked so many great sort of 48-hour romances in Uh, fiction and film for me, maybe most pregnantly before sunrise. Oh, somebody Uh, else mentioned that, too. Yeah? Oh, it was was on my mind. Uh, I, I love the tenderness with which you treat Leland and his love interest, S., and I wonder what stories or other influences kind of gave shape to to the Budapest story for you, if any, or perhaps yeah. uh, your own experience. Yeah, great, great question. Um, I, you know, of course, I know that film. I wasn't thinking of it um, as I wrote the story. And, you know, I'll be, this is kind of where autobiography comes in, because I met somebody like us when I was a young traveler. Uh, I, you know, and I'll be honest, I was trying to get away from some of the things that Leland is getting away from. I'm, I'm not a Mormon. I never have been. But I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian family, and it wasn't exactly a friendly place to be if you read and you ask questions. And uh, I grew up in the, the, the Intermountain West, too, which is a big place. Uh, you, you can't get away from it easily. But I know I, that's I, true. I, yeah. I did what Leland did, and I went abroad, and I, I met somebody like S, who was actually an incredible violinist. There was a lot of pressure on her. Nothing exactly like what happens in the story happens uh, happened to me, 
But I was sitting. I I was in a kind of large uh, concert hall when this young woman played for me, "Death in the Maiden" by Franz Schubert, and I'll just never forget the power of that performance. And I was the single audience for it. It moved me uh, uh, greatly, and it obsessed me ever since. I was thinking, you know, I want to write that scene where. Um, someone is the sole member for that performance. I, I don't know if uh, you know the music, but it is. Schubert wrote it when he was uh, gravely ill, they think now of syphilis, and he died a few years later. He never quite got better. And on, in fact, he was close to death as he was writing it, but he did recover. And it's, you know, kind of uh, the folk tale is, is about the figure of death, the literal figure of death coming for a young woman, a virgin, a maiden who uh, basically hasn't lived her life. And it's, 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 it's his kind of forceful seduction of her and her attempt to escape. And you hear the violence and the passion of that in this uh, music. You, you can, and you can hear um, Schubert, I think, his, the fear for his own life, his own mortality. It's very much alive in it. Um, and the folktale has obsessed me just as uh, uh, the Schubert music has obsessed me. Um, and, you know, Schubert was probably bisexual, probably gay. I think his desires didn't, didn't actually, probably were not fully acceptable to him and certainly not those around him. Mm. And I think you can hear the, the the violence and conflict of that too in the music. And I and for Leland, you know, as a Mormon, uh, his desire is scary. So all of those things were at work. And I do think the tenderness of the romance comes a bit out of the fearfulness of um, Leland in particular, of his own desire. You know, he wants something that, well, he can't quite. He doesn't. He doesn't one have the experience to know how to pursue it and. Two can't quite um, come to terms with it. And so there's a gentleness, I think, in, in this romance, which is not requited, right? They, they, they don't actually have sex, but they, they're intimate in this weekend. So, um, yeah, I think those are the things informing this particular romantic 48 hours, as you call them. Yeah, the, and, and, I, and I want to pick up on the, the strong religious conservatism that runs through a lot of the the stories now i understand that that's you know some of it is a reaction to your own background but it has a major role in in many stories in ways you know sometimes small and sometimes very profound in saved a young man and his girlfriend decide that their young sexual explorations may in fact be a hindrance to the boy's father's cancer recovery and so they desist and try and keep apart from each other your characters are transformed in various ways by religion, and as you as you've just noted, sometimes it dampens desire or complicates desire. So, what do you see religion doing as a shaping agent in these in these stories, and how do desire and belief and guilt kind of commingle with religion as a catalyst to that? Again, you know, obviously, some biographical material here. Uh, uh, that that story save again was was somewhat autobiographical. I was I was a kid in what's called the Inland Empire of California, and that's the Mojave Desert. It's it's the one place in California where real estate is cheap. Nobody mm. wants to live there. It's pretty desolate. Um, and I think that you know the kind of religion that these kids uh, grow up in is 
it's very powerful, right? Because the beliefs are they are they aren't spiritual or uh, figurative. They're very literal. You know, when you when you uh, go to church like they do, they're told that everything they read in the Bible is uh, the literal truth. And there's also a kind of obsession with I think keeping people in this kind of religion uh, inside it. It's it's pretty radical. And so certainly powerful emotions are, are used to manipulate followers, you know, like fear and uh, shame. And of course, we're all human and we live with normal sexual desires, but these aren't normal when you're in a, a religion that sees them as dangerous. And I think that, you know, we all live with, I think, a certain amount of conflict when it comes to desire because intimacy is... Absolutely. But they're they're worried about you know their their eternal fates right these mm. grown up with ideas like the rapture and the um, the end of the world when the judgment will happen and um, rather larger consequences to have yeah. to have to battle with. I mean you know the interesting thing about that is that it actually charges sexuality. You know you I I think when you're in that kind of situation the desires that you shouldn't feel are even more powerful. And you know at the same time they're dealing with this this old woman this next door uh, neighbor Mrs. Barry who's very much not in that world and is starting to allow them to question some of the fundamental things that they believe which which in some ways is freeing to these kids but in other ways it it's threatening their their very foundations. And, you know, as I was writing this uh, this particular story, I became aware that it was a sort of version of the Grimm's uh, fairy tale, uh, Hansel and Gretel, you know, but Mrs. Berry, of course, isn't, is, is, is a benevolent witch in this case. She's actually dealing with mortality in her own household. She has a very sick husband who isn't going to live much longer. And, you know, she kind of She's she's as lonely as the two kids in this story whose parents are dealing with some some difficult things, illness, as you said, but also just just living on the edge of um, poverty. I mean, the, these kids don't have a lot of money and their families are preoccupied with just getting by. And so all three of them are an unlikely, unlikely pairing of friends. But just like Hansel and Gretel, I think that Mrs. Barry and and you know, her questioning of what the kids believe is too much for them, and they 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 have to escape. And I think, you know, in some ways, they they kind of hurt her in that process. Um, mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So I absolutely absolutely for all of these these uh, characters, religion is something that I think magnifies the conflicts of sexuality, of um, transitioning into adulthood. Um, but at the same time, there's a powerful spirituality there that you know I, I certainly knew growing up, growing up, and and you know you you can't simply escape from it. You can't simply leave that behind. Mm. There's a really interesting tension and at times dissonance between the European living and adventures that happens in some of these stories and the class consciousness and rural American life that creeps into those same stories and features in others. Perhaps most visible in the story, Box of Watches, we get a glimpse of a hard life working in a pawn shop and gun store where a robbery reveals a history of difficult living. Living in pain. And that story stands in marked contrast to the privilege and wealth of Kent Boyd in the story of what Kent Boyd had. 
both stories are told with a great deal of sympathy and empathy to the characters who struggle with very different ways of, of living life in a satisfying and fulfilling way. What role does class awareness and class tension play in your work? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's absolutely there. Class is, is is a strange thing for Americans. I don't think we talk about it. We talk about money. But I, you know, I, I was raised by a single mom for the most part who wasn't really prepared to be a single parent and didn't have a profession when she found herself in that situation. So I, I certainly have strong memories of feeling that the world was dangerous because there just wasn't enough. There wasn't enough in the house. There wasn't enough for the end of the month. And there was a, a lot of anxiety around that. And at a certain point, um, oh, I around 10, 11 or so, my mother uh, remarried and, and we were suddenly not dealing with the same sort of precarity, the same sort of anxiety. So I remember the, the, the real shift there. And, you know, I think that certainly you get a sense of both, I, I think, both of those those things. I mean, I remember I was able to travel and get on planes for the first time as a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old. And how remarkable that was because uh, it, it just wasn't part of my experience uh, before. Um, and just feeling like, oh, we don't have to worry about spending this or that or going to a, a, an inexpensive restaurant. So, um, and I do think that, you know, Kim Boyd, when I wrote that story, it is uh, in some ways a, a classic story about a guy who rises up from, I guess, something like my own experience. I don't, I don't, I, I definitely make this guy up. He comes from my obsession with, um, uh, John Up Updike's character, Albert Angstrom, who is who's kind of uh, one of these white guys who sees the world as, as his and, and he goes out and he gets it. He doesn't, you know, he kind of has that sense of privilege uh, and entitlement. And Kent, you know, he comes from poverty, grows up in this place called Pueblo, Colorado. Anybody who's been there uh, will know that is not the beautiful part of Colorado. That's mm -hmm. what you don't want to go back to. Um and uh, he leaves that and uh, heads off to Berkeley, California, meets his wife, ends up in Boston, and makes a lot of money as a lawyer. Um, and that, that story, by the way, is, is a story that's told in uh, a form. I, I use the list, uh, the form of the list, the list of everything he had. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really came from uh, teaching for many, many decades, Tim O'Brien's classic war story, The Things They Carried. And thinking about how stories can use um, lists to create tension and character and um, the list that made sense for this guy, Kent Boyd, because he's so obsessed with having enough and measuring his own life according to the things he has, would have been and is, in this case, a list of all those things he has. Um, the list, however, undermines his own, his own value system because there are a lot of things he has that he wishes he didn't have, including a difficult past, including a, a difficult son who struggles with addiction, including uh, his own alcoholism, Kent Boyd's own alcoholism, et cetera. Um, so, you know, yes, he does kind of achieve uh, the American dream and wealth, and um, and yet that comes crashing down on, on him. And at the end of the day, he's left with the question of, well, how, you know, how do I measure the value of 
of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, he, he doesn't escape, uh, the fears and anxieties of his childhood. They're still with him at the very end of his life as he's alone in his large house. And I, I actually don't think it's a sad story. I think it's a, it's not a happy story, but I think it's a story that tries to capture the humanity of the fact that we all, whether we're comfortable in life or not, are dealing with some pretty frightening questions that kind of make us human. And Yeah, I felt like it, it's a story that treats him as as more than just, you know, the the accumulation of things and privilege and deals with him in, in all the kind of complicated ways that we would want for a character that we develop empathy for. So I felt like it was it, it was a story that was playing against expectations for what that story could have done. And I, I liked that very much. I wonder, have you seen um, Umberto Eco's coffee table book of lists through antiquity to the present? No, I haven't. It's, I, I'm not even sure it's in uh, in print anymore. You can find copies, I think, on eBay. But it's illustrated, and it's an extraordinary display of all the ways in which lists feature in either purposefully or or as a kind of secondary effect of of literature. Yeah. I, well, I love lists, and obviously they can, you know, be very mundane uh, data systems that allow us not to forget things when we go shopping. But they can also be deeply interesting when we sort of start to put some things that don't belong or mm -hmm. have interesting mm -hmm. relationships with the other things in them. I think that's what stories can, can start to do with that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, wonderfully complicated father-son relationships in The Flounder. In Stitches, an accident on a hunting outing reveals a son's strained, strained relationship with his father as the catalyst to everything that the son has become in his life. These relationships have a primal status in American literature writ large. I wonder what your sense of that importance to a literary tradition is and also how you see it in your own work. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, it is, it is an archetypal theme. Uh, what is the relationship between the father and the son? And it does haunt my work for sure. Um, and I, you know, I think the interesting thing about relationships between, um, not all, but many fathers and sons is, you know, they're, they're, they're not very verbal. Uh, they're, they're kind of based in the things we, we go out and do. And, you know, they're so often strained because fathers, I think, don't have to be around. At least culturally, they they can have more distance. And so connection between fathers and sons is, is always fraught. And it's interesting you ask the literary tradition question. I'm going to evade that for now because it's interesting. I'm I'm almost drawing a blank on that. Uh, and it's it's fascinating because tradition is really one of the ways I do think about a lot of the reading and writing I do. But I'll just say that, you know, um, so I, I didn't grow up with my father and I didn't really get to know him until a little bit later as an older kid because he's not the kind of guy that does things with little kids. And, you know, if I wanted to interact with him, I knew it would have to be, uh, you know, out in the woods, he kind of grew up in a in a in a a family that did everything for themselves. They hunted and fished and grew their own food. And 
Um, th that's he's actually a medical doctor, so it's it's not actually what he had to do, but it's what, what he ended up doing. So that's how I connected with him. And some of the reticence in that story is pretty uh, close to what I experienced. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I think that, you know, all of that becomes interesting because the the distance between fathers and sons is sort of the catalyst for the strong need and kind of uh, desire for connection that I think is in a lot of um, a lot of the representation of those relationships, right? Um, yeah, unlike daughters and mothers, where there's there's so much verbal conflict, you, you know, there isn't there isn't a lot of relationship in 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 a lot of father son stories, but there is a lot of desire and need for connection. Yeah, that's that's very much the case. Your characters, Marion and and Daniel, have a fascinating double arc in the collection. In both Nocturne and Flounder, um, they are living in or visiting Switzerland and, and France and trying to understand what their relationship is to place and to each other. Their relationship is profoundly changed by two aesthetic experiences, one with music, the piano playing of their aging landlord and nocturne, and with food in Flounder. Both experiences are in the plane of the sublime and in a way stand in for or replace religious ecstasy. Could you take us through the importance of these sublime experiences with the aesthetic? I'll have to say that these are a couple stories that I've been trying to write for many decades and never have gotten them onto the page. I think the reason that the stories kind of open up into a, a kind of dark, fabulous world, and by dark, I don't mean depressing, I mean, I mean sort of mysterious or numinous, is that um, I, 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 I've really associated this particular couple, Daniel and Marion, with some with some kind of tropes of the fairy tale, and I, I, I that may come from simply the way I experienced Europe when I was in it. Is old, you know, kind of the history that is there as um, a mystery. A lot of it is so old we don't know the story of it, right? And that kind of obsessed me at the time. At the time, I was also learning German and reading the Brothers Grimm's fairy tales obsessively. And I discovered them at that time only in German and didn't realize just what works of art they are and just how disturbing and strange they are, too. I mean, it's amazing to think that they were for kids. I think our Yeah, they're so horrifying for the most part. And One in particular really obsessed me, which is, which is what the the title is named after the flounder is a reference to what's better known as the fisherman and his wife, which is a Grimm's uh, brothers fairy tale that has bothered me ever since I've, I've heard it. It's very simple. A fisherman catches a fish. It's magic. It talks to him and it says, if you throw me back, I'll give you three wishes. He goes to his wife and says, this is what's happened. And she says, go back to that fish and ask for a palace. He does. The fish gives them a palace. She says, hmm, go back and ask for all the golden power of the king. He does. The fish says, got it. He goes back and he's got money and power. And then the wife says, okay, ask to be God, right? The final thing, always a dangerous uh, wish. And, he, and the, the husband does. The fish says, all right. And he goes back and um, his original hovel is there. And they sit down to a bowl of essentially stone soup, something like that. But they're smiling and they're happy. And, you know, this always disturbed me because, you know, there's there's cognitive dissonance for the reader in this. Uh, they're happy, but the reader isn't happy with 
this, right? Um, and I, I, I just thought, wow, this is this is a story about the riddle of desire. And Miriam and Daniel, I think, are dealing with that. You know, what makes their marriage difficult is they don't quite know what they want, and they're trying to figure it out. And um, I think that the riddle of of desire is really kind of what that story illustrates, right? There is no satisfying it. So perhaps the only answer to it is to uh, not have desire, to uh, be happy with your stone soup. Um, we actually don't want that, right? So uh, there, there's no resolution to it. And I think that's where the fabulous world comes from. Mm. It's this sense of in the endlessness of desire, the way in which it's sort of both magical and problematic because it makes us unhappy. And um, yeah, both of those stories, the music, it turns out, is a kind of spell that this old woman, Frau Viet, uh, with whom they're living in Switzerland, she's a very good pianist, right? Um, uh, and she's kind of might seem like a stereotypical old woman at first, but she's she's quite powerful. Um, this is a story about a troubled relationship, a troubled marriage, and they want to argue, but they can't because they're living very closely to this nice old woman in Switzerland. And the first thing you do not want to do in Switzerland is disturb other people and make noise. So they have to repress that unhappiness, but it breaks out. They have a big problem. And one night, clearly Frau Viet knows there's a problem. And she starts playing a nocturne, and this casts its spell, and it's sort of, uh, it's an erotic spell. And uh, Daniel and Miriam find themselves enwrapped, in, in, in and, and, and at least for the night, okay. Um, but we have a sense that it's not all going to be okay in the morning. And indeed, in The Flounder, that's a story about um, infidelity. And it sort of carries on their story. I've uh, just written a third and published a third story about Daniel and Mary and that came out in the Missouri Review. Oh, what's that title? It's called Last Supper. Mm. I'll and, definitely be reading it. Yeah. So again, and it, and it also has a kind of that sublime that you're describing. Yeah, well, I as soon as you said fairy tale and and drew out more that that story of the fisherman and his his wife, it made so much sense the piano playing and the sublimity and and the kind of drawing into a a sort of dream world of desire that in some ways at, at least temporarily heals them. Um, before I let you go, John, I, I'd love to know what you're reading right now and, and whether you have anything to recommend that our, our listeners might be excited about. Sure. I, you know, I, I'd first like to plug a couple short story collections because short stories, I, I, I think collections are wonderful. And, and uh, so often we hear that people don't want to read them. Uh, which I think I've now determined through many, many interviews is just a lie. I think that's yeah. a publishing industry lie that they save, and it's unclear to me why it persists. It's certainly a self-defeating narrative. So mm -hmm. uh, one, one I, I just loved um, Morgan Talty's uh, collection. It's his debut collection. It's called Night of the Living Res is in Reservation. Mm -hmm. um, Morgan Talty is an indigenous writer from Maine, and these stories are also from the perspective of the same young um, young boy and then young man's perspective about life on um, a reservation in an island in Maine. And, and in many ways, they, they uh, recalled for me Dennis Johnson's Col 
classic link short story collection, Jesus's Son, except that these stories are far more tender uh, in in um, in their thrust. They're they're about a family that struggles with addiction and um, some pretty difficult things, but that you know that sense of warmth and love is is always there even when even when there's violence um, and uh, and there is some of that it's it's very moving work and the other story collection a discovery for me uh, by the irish writer colin barrett um his first book called young skins and what i'd say about this it, it's about rural ireland and young people kind of growing up in villages and they're bored and they don't know what to do and they're also kind of living on the edge of poverty but it really recall for me joyce's dubliners the language is just so fine the paragraphs are beautiful the syntax and and yeah you know it's it's dealing with some pretty rough material but just beautifully beautifully written beautifully realized stories he's about to come out with his first novel um, that's quite the recommendation yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's and it, you know it is but of course we're not in dublin um mm -hmm. so and choices it's interesting is kind of come back my students are bringing his stories into the workshop and um I, I i'm surprised because i feel like he sort of disappeared from the classroom for a while but um young young writers are bringing him back so that's interesting you know the other enthusiasm for me up for a while has been the italian writer natalian ginsburg's natalia ginsburg's work um i first ran into her reading a essay by rachel cusk and i love rachel cusk's uh uh outlines trilogy they're really interesting novels. And I think that if you love those, you would also love Natalia Ginsburg's work. But I'd write, she's very idiosyncratic, deeply interesting. Do you have a book in particular that you'd you'd point us to? I, I would start out with her novellas, um, which are av available now through the New York Book Review Press, Valentino, Sagittarius, Family, Borgesia, uh, are all really wonderful in their uh, novellas. Um, and if you love those, then check out her novel, The City in the House. She's mm -hmm. very beautiful. Um, she's kind of an Italian post-war writer. I believe she died in the late 80s and was publishing right up until her death. And my final enthusiasm this summer has been William Trevor. He died a couple of years ago, and I've just been reading his stories. I've read them for years, but... I've just found them so rich recently. One of the problems with William Trevor is that he was just so prolific. You can't yeah. even begin to read all of the stuff he's his collected stories. You could you could easily kill someone with if you dropped yes. it on their head. You could, and I have that, but I rarely get it out for that very reason. You just can't unless you have a pulpit or something. Yeah, it's unwieldy. <laughs> and the paper is is sort of the thinnest, uh, most delicate paper to be able to contain them all. And he just was productive to the very, very end of his life. Yeah. And in a long life, it was so. Uh, but, you know, the selected William Trevor, you can hold, you can bring on the T or the bus or the, the Metro. And I, I, I would just highly recommend it. If you read his classic story, Death in Jerusalem. You'll know if he's for you or not. He's a very quiet writer. Uh, he's very patient. 
But when he builds to his uh, his central scene, it can just be devastating. Really, really powerful. I agree. I find him so devastating, especially about um, relation, intimate relationships. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, those are all uh, very welcome enthusiasms, and I do, I have heard uh, great things about Night of the Living Res, but I haven't I haven't picked it up yet, oh. and that's a, a call to me to to do that ASAP. I want to make sure that my listeners get a copy of The Flounder and Other Stories by John Fulton. It is something that will will pay back your time many times over such beautiful stories, and it was a real pleasure to encounter them. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about them, John. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to John Fulton for his thoughtful conversation on his latest collection of short stories, The Flounder. You can find links to purchase John's book and all of his recommended novels and story collections at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned.